Welcome to another edition of Talking Fußball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we're in a weird and really honestly pretty unhappy place. If you're listening to this podcast, you might have heard that the Bundesliga title race got killed off at midweek. Congrats, Bayern Munich. And if you're even a little with it, you have heard about the man in Minnesota who got killed by police and what that's forced people to confront about our society. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go there. And if you don't think that we should, well, uh, Weston McKinney, Marcus Turam, Jaden Sancho, and Ashraf Hakini, and me all beg to differ. With me this week is a brand new guest. I think it's going to be a great person to have on, especially for this more thoughtful of weeks. You have probably, hopefully, seen her writing on unusual efforts on Bundesliga Fanatic, maybe elsewhere, uh, or hear the Not a Football podcast. It is June Pan. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Matt. Awesome. Awesome. It's 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 good to, you know, be here on a week when maybe there's a little bit some more meat on the bone than just uh, Bundesliga results. Uh, sorry, as we all are to be witnessing what's going on in the U.S., but all eyes are very much on it, even in the Bundesliga. We're going to be talking about the future champs, the once and future champs, I guess, the signs of life in Bremen. We're going to be talking about the absence of fans and how maybe that is kind of changing the meaning of the game and what that means for the future of football, for the future of the Bundesliga. Probably more. Don't go away. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball. This is the part where we talk about the best of Match Day 29 and, you know, maybe a little bit of Match Day 28 because there's some storylines that started there which kind of continued. We just need to accept something at the top of the show. I think we probably all accepted it at about, I don't know, hmm, 10.30 German time. Uh, 3.30, my time, 4.30, your time earlier this week. All those dreams of, of a title race that we all nurtured so lovingly for the first 20-some match days of the Bundesliga. All those dreams, they're dead. Bayern, they took down Dortmund in Dortmund, 1-0, you know, lovely chip, Joshua Kimmich. They opened up a seven-point gap, and nothing that happened on match day 29 changed that fact one bit. Both Dortmund and Bayern beat opponents at the foot of the table, Paderborn and Dusseldorf, respectively, by five goals. It was pretty, pretty easy work for both of them this weekend. Both of those teams, as that shows, still have a lot of firepower, still have a lot of energy. They seem like two great teams that might be going down to the wire with each other, but it's just, man, it's so demoralizing that the last five games of the season are so unlikely to feature any of the drama that we really, really wanted from this thing. Okay, dude, you have seen just as many Bundesliga run-ins turn into Bayern victory tours as I have. <laughs> are, are you feeling okay about this one? Oh, where to start? Where to start? I mean, I, on some level, am slightly relieved that we can just say, all right, the title race is done. We can focus on the relegation race. We can focus on the race for Champions League, for Europa, because things are still quite tight apart from at the very top. Yeah, of the yeah, table. for real. That said, um, watching yet another title race collapse, for lack of a better word, was slightly demoralizing. And yet so utterly predictable. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is just... It's it's getting to a like Lucy Peanuts character football withdrawal situation <laughs> where like 
at least for the last couple of years, we kind of convinced ourselves that that the rest of the league is back or Dortmund is back or Bayern is wounded under a coach who doesn't quite know how to utilize all of their talents. And at least at this stage of this season, all of that just seems like a total mirage. I have no, I have nothing against Bayern. I think Bayern is really a team that sort of, in a lot of ways, in a sort of sporting sense, gets so many things right. I think off the field, whether it's the commercialization aspect or the fact that they, you know, buy a lot of players from competitors, you know, not that happy with them, but, you know, they play good football. It was really nice to watch Bayern play this past weekend. They battered Dusseldorf. They put on a show. They had 21 shots. They had 88% passing completion rate. And and this is a really nice team to watch. Should we, should we just learn to stop worrying and, and love the Bavarian Giants? Uh, is it time to simply accept our fate? Uh, I feel like this is a question that I've been asking myself for as long as I've been a Bundesliga fan, which is quite a strange position to be in because then at the start of every new season, we have hope that things will be different this time. So it's kind of this endless cycle of Charlie Brown with the football that we're going to get at this time and we never quite learn. On the other hand, you can't really give up because if you just accept that oh, it's, there's no race at all. You know, Bayern are going to take it at the end, no matter how hopeful things seem at the end of the Hinruden or even all the way through April, that the challengers, whether it's Dortmund, whether it's Gladbach, whether it's RB Leipzig, they're going to collapse. That said, I think this year has obviously a unique flavor with um, the coronavirus pandemic and the league restarting behind closed doors. I think that's actually given Bayern and Dortmund a real advantage in the way that they play because they are such incredibly skilled teams that when you remove the extra factor of fan support, whether that's egging on the players or adversely affecting refereeing decisions during the game, that what you see, as we saw in the mid-game by Dortmund game, was an absolute masterclass of just pure football. Um, I don't know if that's how you felt watching that game, but that's definitely how I felt that this was just Dortmund at their best, Bayern at their best, and in that battle, Bayern came out on top. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I would more or less go along with what you say in terms of of that being a game that sort of was a good advertisement for the Bundesliga, if you want to look at it that way, or or a sort of. I'm kind of conflicted about the whole thing because there's so much to dislike about the uh, the, the Geisterspieler, right. the Ghost Games, but there is also. I think you're right that there is a certain unvarnished, pure football quality to this, which I don't know, as someone who really does appreciate a lot of the trimmings as much as, you know, the alleged main course, which is the the action on the pitch. I do feel like there's a lot missing from the experience. I, I feel that in a lot of ways, I would have much preferred to see Bayern taking on Dortmund in front of a full yellow wall and having that sort of wild card of fan support. I mean, especially in the event that that the way things played out the way that they did, which is to say that game was on a knife edge for a long time. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Bayern's win. I thought it was a deserved win, especially with a bit of skill that, that Kimmich put on. I think that was a, you know, that chip was just killer. But at the same time, it would have been a lot harder for them to get that done at, at a full Westfalen Stadium. That's absolutely true. And as someone who 
like you said, enjoys all the trimmings and finds that fan support to be, um, I'll, I'll be honest, the fan support in the Bundesliga is the major reason I'm a fan of the league. Obviously, I've learned to love all the other teams and the way they play football and everything else that goes with it. But the fans are my primary reason for being a Bundesliga fan myself. As you know, someone who lives in the United States and has no historical connection with not just the Bundesliga, but with football in general as a sport, just everything about German football fan culture has taught me so much about not just the game, but about collective action and solidarity and just all the models of ownership that you see in Germany and which are now under contention with the way that these games are being played out because the entire policy of continuing the league behind closed doors really is about TV money, right? And how that's become so integral to club survival, which is something that ultra groups in Germany are very much against. Like you saw everyone from Frankfurt's fans to Freiburg to Hamburg, basically every ultra group that I saw over the last couple of weeks were extremely against the opening because everyone posed the question of, well, what is football without the fans? It becomes this pure, almost mathematical exercise devoid of all the passion and community and that feeling of something bigger that you get when you're watching a Bundesliga game and the fans are singing and cheering their team on nonstop for 90 plus minutes, no matter what happens. Like that is so powerful. And you can't replicate that even with the pre-recorded noise, especially with the pre-recorded noise, I would submit. My goodness, yeah, <laughs> that they've had on Sky and Fox, and I don't know if any other broadcasters have started doing that yet, but those two. I understand that I think that BT Sport and in the UK has experimented with. In truth, I actually haven't listened to it. Oh, I have, you know, I watched my um, Bundesliga on Fox Soccer match pass, <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess lucky, in my opinion anyway, uh, they haven't offered... The, the sort of fake fan noise versions of of games, and that they've basically been using that on the the FS1 and FS2 broadcasts. But it doesn't seem. I mean, it seems like it's a real like emblem of of wanting to promote the game as if everything was sort of back to normal, as if this was the same commercial product that you had, you know, been picking up off the grocery store shelf for the past 10 years. And you, you don't want someone to change the taste of your Coke. You want to have a taste, <laughs> you know, you want to taste exactly like the Coke you like. So if there's no fans, it's not quite right. And, but I think that's really a misunderstanding. As you say, I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, you know, you and, and me and many others, are, there's, there's a lot of us who, who watch the Bundesliga for the atmosphere right. and not for, for a fake atmosphere, for a real atmosphere. Yeah, it's just, it's just something so strange about the fact that they have this canned crowd noise on the stream, right? But then every time the camera pans away from like dead center on the pitch, you can see there's no one there. Oh, man. <laughs> there's no one there. So it's this very haunting and surreal experience of who's speaking right now. I mean, just like the temporal dissonance, the visual dissonance, it, it honestly like gave me a straight up, it gave me anxiety when I tried to watch some of these games on FS1 <laughs> and I had to retreat to the relative safety of Fox Soccer Match Pass, where at least the audio that you heard was what was happening in the stadium, which was the coaches and the bench and the players shouting at each other. 
that in itself has been interesting just to hear the number of languages being shouted during some of these games when people are screaming at each other in German and English and Spanish. Yeah, it is. It's an unholy din. Like it is is certain junctures of play, especially when like there's a transition or there's like a sort of impending chance you, you will get, you know, eight or nine players shouting at full volume at each other. And it's, it's very hard to deal with as like a sonic environment sometimes. Yeah. It, it also just shows you sometimes when people criticize players of like, oh, how did he not see that someone was making the run? Did he not hear the call being made? And you're like, well, you listen to it. Could you have picked out <laughs> this one person screaming over 22 others as buildup was happening? Yeah. Yeah. Much Probably less when you're not. in a full stadium and that's even harder to hear. Right. There have been a couple instances of um, also goalkeepers trying to shout at their defenders to get out of the way. And because other people were shouting, no one heard them. Uh, so that, I mean, that's been enlightening, but it's obviously also been exceedingly strange. Uh, I don't know if we want to talk about the other proposals that have been made for how to fix, quote unquote, fix football as a commercial product, not just the canned crowd noise, but using augmented reality and CGI. Yeah, I mean, we, we did see the, um, I guess we saw the experiment, which was, I mean, it's not augmented reality or, or CGI, but it's kind of getting in that vague sort of zone with Denmark experimented with these uh, Zoom, segmented Zoom stream uh, fans at their uh, at their stadia, which, you know, I don't watch a lot of, you know, Danish football, so I guess uh, I, I have to rely on just the, the, the little snippets that you see on the internet. Does that strike you as any more or less satisfying than the uh, solutions that we've seen, either no fans unvarnished or uh, uh, fake fans uh, <laughs> brought in, disembodied fans? I think somehow the fans being in the game via a Zoom screen made it even more dystopian. It was kind of the similar feeling I had when, who was it? Gladbach had the cardboard cutouts of fans in their stadium yep. for their games. I don't know if they're still doing it. They definitely did it for at least the first game after the restart. And when they panned to the crowd and you just saw these cardboard cutouts like filling the entire stand, I had a moment of literally what the heck is happening here? Are people being replaced? And it just made me think of the possibility of a future where even if there aren't players in the stands, so like even if you had a team that had really poor match atmosphere or say the fans organized a walkout in protest, you would not be able to tell because the augmented reality slash CGI technology could just paint over those empty stands with virtual fans. And that was an incredibly saddening thought to me because the use of AR has been discussed. It was brought up during, if I'm not mistaken, the English Premier League's talks of Project Restart, that there are a couple um, VR and television companies that have the technology available now to essentially create this AR CGI experience where they could make the stadium look like it was full. And the technology even includes this feature where fans who are using their product can cheer into their phone. And then that audio of the fans cheering at home would be piped into the stadium to literally create this fake atmosphere, even though no one's there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote about this for Bundesliga fanatic and just, I was trying to hold myself back from saying, how can this even be on the table as an option? This is absolutely not what football should be about. 
But at the same time, there are people saying, well, you know, the club has to think of the viewer's experience. They have to think of the customers, the fans. And, you know, they do all sorts of things to make match day more enjoyable. There are, you know, from everything from hospitality in the stadium to even um, commentary and the like match clocks and live updates when you're watching games. These are all edits to reality, right? So when you're watching Bundesliga on FS1 or whatever your provider is, you're not watching the unvarnished view of the field. There are already temporal splices where, you know, the camera cuts away, the camera shows replays, things are slowed down. And these are all edits to what the actual unvarnished experience is like when you're just in a stadium watching a game, which I'm sure we all know. And yet we accept that. But just where is the where is the line? Like, that's my question right now. Where's the line? Yeah, and I feel like that the people's perception of uh, football as, as a television program, too, has changed so much over the years, whether it's, you know, sort of acceptance slash demand for, for those sort of extras, whether those it's like, you know, animated lineup cards at the top of, of a game, down to, as you say, like all those cut-ins of replays or, you know, coaches on the bench. I mean, I, you know, over the, the, the sort of COVID break that we just had watched parts of some old um football matches i mean and some some not even really all that old being you know back in in the you know late 90s or or something like that which is granted old but not like crazy old not like 70s or 60s games which is very very low tech but like the level of broadcast sophistication is just it's so different i mean especially when you do watch old, old matches where there's very few replays, where there's, you know, maybe one or two camera perches covering the whole field and maybe one sideline camera if you're lucky. Like, it's very different. It's very much more like watching a game from a stadium to, to a degree in that, like, it's not a produced experience like it is now. It's, it's, it's you know, what we experience football on TV now is just so high gloss. yeah. And like, I don't, I don't want to be the anti-technology person to say, oh, all of that's bad and we shouldn't have all of it. No, we should have some of it. Some of it, most of it has been very good. You know, I think expanding access and making football easier to understand and lowering the threshold of getting into football, which is what all these produced segments, you know, you have commentary and explanations, replays of offside, I think is the biggest one that jumps into my mind, where now you have all these like colored lines and stills as the video assistant is making their call that you yourself can see what they're working with. And that's something that you did not have in years past. I vividly remember like arguing with friends about, oh, was that offside? Was that not? And you only had one camera angle. So we had no idea of what the referee actually saw just because angles can be extremely deceiving. So I think some of, a lot of the improvements have been really good for TV viewers and newer fans and just like any football fan in general, when you have, now you have like live stats and positioning on the streams, Mm -hmm. which is something I noticed this season. And especially in recent games, I don't think they did it all season. It was just the last couple of games 
where now after like the first 15 minutes, they'll give you an average position of every player on the pitch. Yeah, this Amazon Web Services data deal that they struck, I, I think at midseason has been sort of rolling out little by little new, you know, statistical visualizations and so forth, which, you know, <laughs> leaving aside <laughs> all the problematic aspects of Amazon and, and Amazon's control of so much of the web, like, it is pretty neato what's been happening in the Bundesliga TV broadcast. So. Yeah. Like for us football nerds, we're like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> like the stuff that usually I would be like fiercely Googling to try to find the stats. Now it's right there on my TV. Like uh, they're doing all the work for you. Totally. That's it. It's probably not that great for us to be spoon fed literally everything we understand about football because <laughs> i think actively participating and thinking about what you're seeing is also a good thing yeah yeah i mean and and you know th speaking of active participation i think there's sort of some connection to be had talking now about you know what happened with with certain players kind of breaking that veil of uh i don't know like branded football product that was going on where you really have you have all the signage, you have all the broadcast uh, things going on, you have the, the sponsors on the kits. And we did have four players in the Bundesliga this uh, this weekend, which is to say, you know, Jaden Sancho and Ashraf Hakimi in Dortmund, Marcus Turam for uh, Gladbach, as well as Weston McKinney at Schalke, all, you know, in their own way, putting out messages of support for the uh, justice for George Floyd, uh, Black Lives Matter protest movement going on in the United States. And it's been pretty interesting to see both how, you know, the reaction that has, has come about following this. I mean, at least initially, the, you know, the DFB who, you know, control things like, uh, you know, the permissibility of political expression during football matches and, and refereeing and things like that. I mean, all the guys who took their shirts off, which is to say, I guess, Sancho um, got, got a yellow card for, for doing, having a message on his shirt. And it looks like maybe they're thinking about letting this slide because the reaction from so many people in so many places would be so negative if they tried to go after these guys which you know yeah it, it's it's great that they're probably not going to do anything about it it's disheartening that the investigation was even open to begin with yeah i think when i saw the news this morning was it was a kicker i want to say that broke the news that the dfb control committee said they were looking into the incident with sancho hakimi etc um, and I just had a moment of like, are you serious? He already got a yellow. Just let it go. There is no reason to look into this any further. But to me, in that moment, the fact that they still felt obligated to even open this investigation told me that they weren't thinking as fellow members of not even humanity, fellow members of a football community who are affected by this. But the DFB were acting as brand managers. Um, and they felt that they had to protect the product at all costs. And minimizing the use of political messages is part of protecting the brand. Yeah. And when you mentioned protect the product, protect the brand, um, that really gives me that icky 
National Football League, protect the shield, uh, <laughs> gross phrase, which of course was, you know, thrown around quite a lot during the, you know, Colin Kaepernick protest movement, which kind of inspired a lot of this stuff and, you know, even inspired its own very small reflection in the Bundesliga a couple of years ago. But I mean, this is this is where all this is 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 headed. And at least at least that attitude of you know, protecting the brand at all costs. At least there might be some self-consciousness as to how <laughs> corrosive and lame that is. However, you know, as, as a couple of people did point out, I mean, there was also a great dissonance on the mind of at least a number of German journalists on Twitter about why the DFB would be trying to uh, go after these these messages, especially at the same time when this weekend in the Bundesliga was the so-called Deutsche Diversity Talk, which is, you know, German Diversity Day promotion that the DFB was putting on. It was, you know, you might have seen, I think Wolfsburg had rainbow sponsor um, decals on their shirt and there was some some rainbow uh, corner flags. I mean, this was meant to be the DFB's reaching out to LGBTQ people and and, you know, diversity issues in that respect, and then to sort of turn around and investigate players who are bringing up a pretty urgent issue just, it was appalling. Yeah, and I think it really lays bare the hypocrisy of the entire exercise of any major brand's attempt at diversity tends to be an empty performative gesture, you know, because as a brand, their priority is not to actually social change. Their priority is to their stakeholders and to making more money and to create more customers for their product. So when you look at it that way, it's ontologically impossible for a brand to say, oh, we're going to be socially responsible and use everything in our power to actually, you know, fight homophobia, fight sexism, fight racism, and all these other issues that affect our players and our members and everyone in society because that's not their concern. And, you know, one of the, because it is Pride Month, happy Pride, and you're going to be seeing rainbow campaigns everywhere. And this is something that's called rainbow washing, where they use a cause and something that people have bled and died for in order to promote their own brand as something inclusive so that they can get more customers who are LGBTQ or who are, you know, I don't know, progressive-minded and want to say they support LGBT issues but don't want to be on the streets. But, you know, they'll buy a rainbow pin. They'll buy a pair of boots that have rainbow laces. So that's like a very consumerist attitude to how do you participate as a meaningful member of society. And it just this week of all weeks, it's so toxic and so disheartening that to see the rainbow corner flag like so starkly just juxtaposed with Weston McKenney, Jaden Sancho, Mark Sturam, and Akhra Fakimi taking a stand for what they believe in. And they, as Black men who are discriminated against in our society on all levels, that their own political consciousness was then basically discredited by the DFB saying, oh, you took a stance on a political issue that wasn't expressly approved by us for our brand, so it's not allowed. Which just says we don't actually care. We just care how this looks for us. And if a political stance might not reflect well on us, then it doesn't matter. Okay, so we're back. It's Matt Herman and June Pan here on Talking Foosball. Before we, I guess we leave the uh, the sort of title race 
boohoo, it's over topic behind. Do you have much hope in, in the coming years? You know, you at least had the pleasure of naming, uh, what, four teams uh, that, that are, are really quite good in the Bundesliga, or five, if you count Bayern among them. Is the improvement of these other sides, which is to say, you know, Leverkusen and Gladbach and Leipzig and Dortmund, going to be sufficient enough to catch up to this really quite good Bayern? Or is Bayern just going to like be like, you know what, uh, we're, we're going to buy Kai Havertz and Erling Holland and Diet Upamecano <laughs> and Florian Neuhaus and like, come at me, dog. <laughs> uh, I think on some level, we all know that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that said... Uh, it, it comes down to a, a matter of who has the resources to compete, right? Because Dortmund have been so good, but they've been good in such short cycles that they, they just don't have the time to build any kind of momentum. So you had the team in the early 2010s, and then you had one or two teams that really competed in the mid-2010s, and then you have this current team. But every time they lose key players, um, not even to Bayern, to other clubs abroad, or, you know, to retirement, which I think is going to hit this Dortmund side quite hard soon as well, because several of their key players are, are getting up there, you know. So in that sense, the only club I see as really having the resources to compete on Bayern's level is people are going to boo me for this. It's RB Leipzig. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, like, we all, we all you know, boo the energy drink empire, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at just on paper, there if you want someone to actually knock Bayern off the top, it's gonna be Leipzig, because other clubs are also stuck in the same cycle as Dortmund. If they develop a great young player like say Kai Havertz, and then someone comes knocking for a hundred million dollars, and there's no way Leverkusen can turn them down, so he's gone in like this summer, next summer. Like Kai Havertz is not sticking around. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, and, and Havertz. Proved- <laughs> this just this just makes me so sad to think about that the only hope we have is Leipzig. I know. I know. I mean, uh, I don't know. The tricky part is that um, Leipzig have gone a long way toward making themselves a lot more, sort of a lot less objectionable than they could be uh, by being a club that, you know, runs itself so smartly in terms of its scouting, in terms of its player development. I mean, it would be really sad and lame if Leipzig just like, try to land their mothership and run themselves like, I don't know, like Chelsea or something like that, who just like, we're going to buy a lot of expensive players and, you know, pay them a lot. And then we're going to win a lot. Yeah. <laughs> At least they didn't do that. Right. Credit where due. That said, Leipzig is a symptom of the overall problem where in the system where like you don't have salary caps, you really don't have any regulations about how much a club can spend. So Bayern, having been so successful, are just going to keep being more successful, right? It's the basic trap of capitalism. The rich get richer unless you put in some handrails, unless you start trying to distribute talent or wealth or whatever it is in order to have not even a level playing field, but at least a manageable playing field. And there have been like some wild theories thrown out over the years. I, I you can cut this because I don't think I'm correct, but I want to say it was Uli Hunes maybe six or seven years ago who said the Bundesliga could benefit from an American playoff system almost um, in order to introduce more competition for the title. So then at least at the end of the season, you would have, you know, six or eight teams who would go into a knockout style competition for the title instead of Bayern just 
you know, running the table season after season after season because just the depth of quality and the depth of resources that they have makes it so hard for anyone else to compete with them with any kind of consistency. So you think about it, even if Dorman had won the league last year, if they hadn't, you know, fallen on their faces, which is exactly what happened last February, do you think Bayern wouldn't have come back and won this season? I think most of us would say no. We would have expected Bayern to spend even more money to, you know, to tighten their ship even further and really make a run for the title, which they kind of see as theirs. But the number one job of any Bayern coach that comes in is you have to win the league. That's a prerequisite. It's not an ambition. And that's because they're so far beyond the reach of most Bundesliga clubs. I feel you, I feel you though, because I, I don't, I'm not entirely certain when you started watching the Bundesliga in earnest, but in that you are a Stuttgart fan, it could be, <laughs> it could be maybe around what, 13 years ago when they were actually a title uh, challenger slash title winner. So I'll actually tell you the story of how I became a Stuttgart fan, which I've never told anyone. Yeah, go for it. Which is, uh, yeah, so this is a June exclusive on Talking Fußball. Boom! <laughs> Boom. But in 20, I started watching uh, Ben's football earnestly in 2010 during the World Cup. So then I followed most of the German national team back home to the Bundesliga. But that same summer, I got a used copy of FIFA 09 for the PlayStation 2. Uh, and as I was waiting for like league action to start, I played through several seasons on FIFA 09, and I decided to manage Stuttgart of all teams. I really could not tell you why. I think because I just looked at their roster and I saw like, Kadira, Kakao, Mario Gomez, like players that I love from the World Cup. And I was like, oh, they play for this team. This seems like more of a challenge than just going for Bayern, where like they're so much better than everyone else will definitely win the league. So like, let me try managing this team. And <laughs> kind of accidentally, I fell in love with this team that I myself had put in so much work on this fake version of Stuttgart on the PS2. And then when the league restarted, I started watching Stuttgart and they were a mess, if you remember Stuttgart from the early 2010s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were They were a mess. They were burning They're, through coaches for a couple of years. They really were. Um, I mean, I think the only team in recent memory on the top play that can give them a run for money would be Hertha Berlin this year, five coaches. I think Stuttgart topped out at maybe three I, in I've one got my, season. My, each of my, my index fingers held up, and I'm, <laughs> I'm waving them around. <laughs> I always forget that you're a Hertha fan, but uh, congratulations on Labadia. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Labadia, he was the one who came in and righted the ship for Stuttgart in the early 2010s. They avoided relegation really by the skin of their teeth several times in a row. And for some reason, apparently because I hate myself, I went, yeah, I'll keep following this team. I kind of like them. And that is the true story of why I follow possibly one of the worst teams you can follow in German football, which is... <laughs> about Feaster Hey, you know, it, it was really a closely run thing, uh, Stuttgart or Hamburg. Uh, and, and luckily you, you got to be on the winning side of that totally weird, you know, masochistic rivalry uh, on, on Thursday. Oh, that game. Uh, do we want to talk about that game now or should we save it for later? Uh, we, we can push it to the end. It's, it's, it happened a few days ago and, uh, you know, it's probably an acquired taste whether people... <laughs> 
other people <laughs> want to stick with us for that. I wanted to steer it quickly back around to uh, just just to sort of uh, you know tie up the, the the topic. We already talked about these other teams who are sort of um, you know in contention for the Champions League. Everybody pretty much pretty much got the job done. It's it's very very tight, as you probably know, folks. You know it's. After after Dortmund, uh, who are on what uh, sixty points in second place, fifty eight points for Leipzig, and then fifty six points apiece for Gladbach and Leverkusen. Everybody won Leipzig. They um, you know they won in Cologne. This was a kind of a kind of a funny game. Um, Cologne went up in the seventh minute, but you know if you thought that that was going to be enough to beat Leipzig, uh, you should probably watch more Leipzig. <laughs> and actually, you should probably just watch more Leipzig. They're actually a really fun team to watch. They've got a really uh, a lot of fun players. They've got a great coach. They just happen to be a bummer in almost every other way. Gladbach, they too, they, it was a 4-1 win for them at home to Union. You know, Marcus Turam, who we have talked about his uh, his protests earlier in the podcast, he's got three goals. And, you know, that was a big, big bounce back game for them after they had, you know, lost and drawn earlier in the English of Volcha. And uh, Kai Havertz, you know, we can't we can't have a podcast without uh, a t- Kai Havertz uh, section. He I had a, you know... Really nice sort of under pressure toe poke um, at, at a pretty tight angle to uh, uh, get a goal and to push Leverkusen past Freiburg 1-0. It made him also the youngest player in Bundesliga history to score 30 goals, a record which he held for exactly one day uh, <laughs> after Jaden Sancho uh, scored a hat trick on Sunday uh, to put him into the books ahead of uh, Kai Havertz by... Uh, 203 days that's that's uh, not not such a, uh, a a wide or not such a fine margin i think he's going to be holding on to that um holding on to that record for for a while I don't, I don't know maybe maybe you've got better intelligence than me is there someone uh under 21 21 or 20 years old and and fewer than uh what 63 days that Jaden Sancho got his 30 goals in the Bundesliga. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Well, Josh Sargent is quite a ways <laughs> off from that. Oh, and man. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I could not resist taking that shot. You just left it open for me. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling uh, it. Because Josh Sargent, to be fair, he has been on the pitch for a lot of this turnaround for Werder Bremen. We might as well talk about Werder Bremen for a second because, you know, they are on a, on a pretty good road. They have gotten themselves, what, six, seven points uh, over this past week, this is uh, a lot more points than they're they're sort of accustomed to picking up. Yes, they're undefeated in what is it three games now, and they've won two of them. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, honestly, I am vaguely looking forward to them overtaking Fortuna Dusseldorf for that playoff spot. I think it could happen when you consider that Dusseldorf have some really tough games coming up. And Bremen seemed to have gotten some confidence back. In which case, we may well get a North Derby playoff this season. Oh, that would be just scrumptious. That would be that would be <laughs> as as good as you can get. Yeah, I'm I'm truthfully a little bit worried not only about uh, Düsseldorf getting overtaken, but the likes of I mean, Mainz is not doing so well at the moment. They they went down to uh, Hoffenheim. Uh, also in a one nil one nil situation, and dare I say it? Maybe I have to whisper it because um, of of my guest last week, Kit Holden, who you know gave me the hardest time for uh, talking about Hertha as a European candidate. We'll get onto that in, in just a minute. But 
Union. They are conking out. They can't score anymore. I'm a little worried that if if Bremen keep winning, if Dusseldorf ever wake up, they could get uh, they could find themselves into a tight squeeze. They really could. I mean, we've seen Union Berlin in seasons past when they were in the second division that this would be the point of the season where they just essentially forgot how to play football, like completely for a ridiculous run of matches. And that's why they were only promoted last season. That said, I think Union have, who do they have coming up? I'm looking at my football app. They have Schalke, Köln, Paderborn, Hoffenheim, and then Dusseldorf on the very last match day. Oh man, it's all in their hands. That, that's Yeah, so it's, it's literally Union to lose at this point because by comparison, you know, Fortuna just got spanked by Bayern this week. But next week, they've got Hoffenheim, and then they've got Dortmund, Leipzig, and Augsburg, who are nothing to sneeze at, frankly. If they decide to shut you out, you could be in for a world of hurt. And then that game against Ber- uh, Union Berlin on the final match day. So this could this could really come down to the wire. That sounds fair. That sounds fair to me. Oddly enough, I mean, we were talking about Josh Sargent earlier, and, you know, I... Sorry, Josh. I, we we do laugh at you sometimes because you don't score very often. He has been on the pitch, which has been one of his problems uh, with not scoring in in his Werder Bremen careers. That he haven't hasn't played as much as many of us would have liked to have seen him played. Um, but you know, the guy who's sort of sticking out at the moment for for Werder Bremen is Leonardo Bittencourt, who. <laughs> man, if if you've watched the Bundesliga for the last several years, you know, and you support either any club, but especially if you support Dortmund or Hanover or Cologne or even Hoffenheim. I mean, this guy is one of the most unpredictable slash frustrating players in the league. I mean, he clearly has something going on. He's got a great shot. He's, you know, finds himself in dangerous positions a lot, but often makes the wrong decision in those positions. And and the fact that, you know, he's scored a couple of crucial goals in these one nil wins for Werder Bremen. Um, and maybe he can turn into like Werder's, you know, relegation battle hero, and maybe he's going to become like a like a Werder legend. That's, this would be a weird turn of events. That would definitely be one of the biggest plot twists of 2020. I mean, in like the you know the 2020 plot twist bingo. I don't think anyone had Leonardo Bittencourt of all people saving Werder Bremen. I think people would have predicted murder hornets before they <laughs> predicted that. I mean, like nice, that's that's nice, not nice. to say well, he's not a good player because obviously anyone who's watched, we've been so frustrated by him over the years. That's because he's quite good. He just can't seem to use his powers for good. Until now, maybe this is his moment. This is his origin story as a superhero. Nice, nice. I, I like it. We've, we've got we've got to get out our, our screenwriting apps and uh, you know, start <laughs> start plugging in, you know, different different phases for the, for this for the hero's journey. Yeah, it's just going to be the legendary the, the magic triangle of Werder Bremen twenty twenty. Mila Rashiska, Josh Sargent, and Leo Bittencourt. <laughs> they will ride their those three guys all the way to <laughs> mid table. <laughs> Whether that's in the top division or the second division, no one knows. But well, uh, I, I, I'm being too harsh. Nah, and 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 Milot's not going on that that the D two ride. <laughs> he's, he's yeah, he's not. He's taking taking his business elsewhere. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Hertha, who you know I think 
when you start getting articles written about you, as I think today's, you know, Honigstein special in the, in the athletic was something to, to the effect of Hertha dot, dot, dot are good question mark, which, <laughs> you know, I've, I've pulled that one before in, in, you know, titles to podcasts and it's, it's an easy one to make speaking from experience, but I really do think that this team is on a march somewhere right now. I mean, they've gotten 10 points from 12 since restarting uh, for after the, the COVID break. They've outscored their opponents 11 to 2. I can't really say that the win over Augsburg on Saturday was like a work of art, but it was pretty, pretty mature, controlled stuff from a team that has lacked maturity and control, let's just say, for most of the season. I got laughed at by Kit Holden last week for, for, for talking about them as a team who could make it into Europe. There's only four point gap at the moment. Are you going to laugh at me? Are you uh, gonna do I'm that not going to me? laugh at you as someone who has lived through multiple Bruno Labadia miracles. I will not discount it because every time I do, I look like the fool at the end of the season. So I'm going to firmly believe in Hertha. I mean, not, not just for self-defense, but because the game against Augsburg, like you said, it, it wasn't really pretty. That said, Augsburg were quite organized. And um, I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly. Andreas Luta had a really good game. Yeah, for sure. For sure. In that game, there, there were, I mean, Vidati Visevich, like could have easily gotten a brace. And just the stops that Luta pulled out to deny him. Oh, dude, that, that glancing header oh, my God. from, the, from yeah. the left wing. like So good. I mean, that said, he still conceded two goals at the end of the day because that's just Andreas Luch's life. But I think that that game really showed something that I think Hertha have been on the cusp of achieving multiple times, not even just this season, but of many seasons past, where they show a real tenacity, even in situations where people would have said, oh, it's fair that they got the draw because the opposition put up quite a good fight that they managed to find a way through. And like you said, I think that's a mark of maturity for this team and something that they haven't been able to find before. Yep. I'm also really impressed and pleased with the fact that Bruno Labadia has settled on Dedrick Boyata and Jordan Tarunariga as his first choice center back pairing. I mean, maybe you could argue that some of that choice has been made for him considering some of the injury issues that has, you know, been hanging over the likes of, of Nicholas Stark and, and Karim Rekic. But like... I have wanted to see those two guys play as the first choice center back pairing all season. And it has totally done my head in that, you know, <laughs> all of Hertha's parade of previous coaches haven't figured out that those, these are the guys. These are the guys. They are going to, you know, basically keep a lot of opposing uh, attackers under control because, you know, they're both really positionally smart, big, fast guys who, like, you know, can really impose themselves on a lot of players. I mean, even even Timo Werner at midweek just looked pretty whatever against Serta compared to what he normally looks like because he was just sort of sort of pushed around. Yep, that's something Bruno Labadie is quite good at drawing out the best of players who are, you know, tactically disciplined and strong and smart in that way that he will figure out a way to use their strength to the utmost. It might not always get you the prettiest football, let's be real. Some of, you know, the sides that, like when he was coaching Wolfsburg, some of those games were really just, 
you could have fallen asleep and not missed anything, let's be real. But it does get results for a team that really needs that stability and Hareton needed that stability. So I don't think there's anything wrong with being extremely optimistic for the near future. Because like you said, they're only, what are they, they're four points off European? Yeah, four points. I mean, Freiburg is, is level with them on 38 points and Freiburg do have a better goal difference. So I, I, I don't want to count them out of, of closing that gap either. But, you know, you look at the teams um, immediately above them, the Wolfsburg and Hoffenheim, you know, teams who I don't trust to stay in any kind of consistent form any more than I normally would uh, Hertha, really. So <laughs> I think I think the chances are OK. All right. Um, I guess. The one, the one match that we hadn't sort of mentioned briefly, it doesn't really matter. Eintracht Frankfurt. Got a really nice two-one win in Wolfsburg. That you know, of course, uh, helps helps uh, my beloved Hertha's campaign toward Europe. Uh, you know, I'm saying that I guess half in jest because I don't want to fully invest in this. But they also, uh, I guess, Eintracht have another chance. They have a, have a game in hand because they had not yet uh, gotten to face Werder Bremen. That game that was, um, you know canceled because of another game that was canceled, you know, a whole series of things that were going on in the sort of pre-COVID weeks when, you know, matches were getting pushed. Uh, on Wednesday, anyway, uh, Eintracht are going to take on Bremen in that makeup game. I'm kind of psyched about that game, actually, oddly. You know, considering these are two not terribly good teams this year, I think they're both coming into this game with a little bit of wind at their backs, and they both have uh, quite a lot to play for, maybe a little less Eintracht, but, you know, Eintracht, they're only on 32 points. They're not totally safe yet. I think this could be a really nice game. Yeah, I think so, too. I really have nothing useful to say about Eintracht Frankfurt other than I love Makoto Hasebe, and I, I'm very glad he extended his contract for another year because genuinely just one of the most consistent and commanding defensive midfielders, even though he's he's like quite old now, but it's just been a joy to watch him play. Yeah, he seems like one of those guys you want to keep around as long as you can, even even if he only gets like, you know, six or seven appearances in a season. He's just, he's ready to rock. Yeah, he can come in at center back in defensive midfield, basically wherever you need him to shore things up a little bit. Like, he's there for you. I think a lot of teams in the Bundesliga could use a player like that right now. But unfortunately, there's only one of him, and he's at Eintracht Frankfurt, so everyone else back off. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have him, he's ours. Well, that is all for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. It was really, really good to have you on the podcast, Jen. Thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. And it was very good to be here with you. Nice. If you want to get more from June, please do get more. Uh, she's on Twitter at TLDR June. You can read her work on Unusual Efforts, Bundesliga Fanatic, Football Paradise, as I said before, uh, the podcast, the Not a Football Podcast. Check it out. If you want to contact me, I'm Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter. Please do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods and do tell anybody who watches German football about this show. And, you know, let's face it, who doesn't watch German football these days? Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.